Six o'clock on the wall says it's seven minutes past nine at WCTF Radio, AM 680 and FM 98.5. Tom Kearney is my name. I'm here every night, Monday through Friday from 9 until 10 with a little bit of live and in real-time radio. And when we can, we try to uh, bring you a guest who know what they're talking about. And uh, Let's see, 29 years ago, almost 29 years ago, I was looking for a a guest to talk about Pearl Harbor. It was uh, turned out to be the 50th anniversary of Pearl Harbor in 1991. And my my good friend at uh, NC State, Dr. James Chris, said, Tom, I have the perfect person for you. And, and it was the gentleman who is our guest tonight, and he's been our military historian since then for 29 years, Dr. Joe Cadell. He is... Uh, from Aberdeen, North Carolina, or thereabouts. John, am I doing all right? Yes, sir. Okay, I, I was just wondering who this person you know. is that knows, knows something. I'm waiting to, for you to find out who that is. Pardon me? I, you said there was you, you had people on who knew what they were talking about. I'm waiting to find out who that is. <laughs> and he has a good sense of humor, but he, he, he's a graduate of the University of North Carolina. In fact, I've called him many times over the years to be on our program. We might as well have a little fun, Joe. Uh, <laughs> and... Uh, the only time he's ever turned me down is if Carolina's playing basketball. He absolutely refuses to have anything to do with me, but I understand that. After getting an undergraduate degree at, at Chapel Hill, he got a Ph.D. at Duke. And like I said, if we could just get a little bit of Wake Forest into him, he'd be all right. Well, my daddy went to Wake Forest. Pardon me? My father went to Wake Forest, and my brother went to law school at Wake Forest. So, Well, maybe there's, maybe there's a little, well, a little there's of what there's they call no formula. Yeah. Yeah. Still over there, yeah. <laughs> that, that sounds good. Um, My father went to Wake Forest when it was still in Wake Forest. So, yeah, did he go to medical school there? No, he, uh, he went to the University of Georgia for medical. I knew, I knew. I was, t- I was giving your bio to, to John before we came on the air because, of, uh, well, we were, we had a little extra time, and I was just talking you up there and so on. But Doctor Cadell is with us tonight because, well, because I'd invite him to come once a week if he could, but he's kind of busy. He teaches a lot at. At Chapel Hill, and you still teach at State too, don't you, Joe? Yeah, I do one class every semester at State. And uh, and just just the bit about being a teacher uh, with the current uh, situation with the virus is something just just to cope with. But uh, this is uh, Veterans Day, the eleventh day uh, of the eleventh month, and if we wanted to extend that, we would get to the the, the memorable part of the eleventh hour. But but we'll come back to that. And it is Veterans Day, and uh, we've invited uh, Dr. Cadell to come and, and talk uh, about something that has to do, uh, in, the, in this case, with World War One, which uh, the armistice for, to World War One, not, not the, the, the sur- surrender, not the peace treaty, but the armistice to stop the fighting so the peace treaty could be negotiated in the next year or so at Versailles, right. uh, took place on this date in 1918. And so we're going to talk a little bit about that tonight. With your permission, Joe, we never rehearsed this. Dr. Cadell right. and I actually haven't <laughs> talked about this. But he usually knows what, 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 what enough to, to tell uh, what's going on. He is, by the way, a, uh, had a career in the military. You, he was, in the, I believe, in the Air Force. Yes. You, and, uh, and for a number of years, and then the Air Force Reserve while you were teaching. And so he's walked the walk, and he's talked the talk. Uh, Joe, I want to ask you about one thing that I've been reading, uh, read something about lately, and then 
if we could start about April of 1917 and sort of walk through the war up to the uh, to the armistice, would that be all right with you sure. tonight? Sure. Hello. Yes, sir. Okay, John. Uh, if, if those pots will go any higher, I would would probably help a little bit. Uh, uh, I I had a book pointed out to me written by uh, I think her name is Jeanette. I can't think of her last name. She's James Conant's granddaughter. Hmm. And she's written a book. Uh, she wrote for the New York Times and other publications. But she's written a book about uh, something that happened at the, uh, in, in the, uh, during World War II. I think it was in 1943. When it's, it's, I'm trying to say, I'm, I'm, I'm losing my contact with names these days. But it's a four letter town on the western coast of Italy uh, that where there was a, a, a staging area for British and American military troops, and the Germans attacked uh, a, a group of uh, ships that were there one night and, and sort of made a mess of things, and it, to a great extent it has been put on the back burner and hidden away, but apparently some of the American and British ships were carrying mustard gas. Yeah, Do yeah, you know about that? Yeah, yes, yeah. And, uh, but Barty. I think you think about Barty. Well, what I what I learned about it, I know. I, what I'm really asking you now is, to what extent did the Germans really use mustard, and I, I think maybe chlorine gas, oh, or, yeah. and did did the other side use any? But well, I learned something I, I've always wondered about. There's nothing about mustard in mustard gas. It just smells like it. Yeah, is what I learned from reading her, yeah. reading her book. Yeah, it's incredibly caustic. It's um. Yeah, my my father actually had a patient uh, who passed away in the nineteen late fifties, early nineteen sixties at the VA hospital in Durham, who um, to some extent was still suffering from uh, mustard gas um, in his lungs, and he was in the VA hospital. And I can remember my father would drive up from Moore County to see him occasionally, and when he passed away. Uh, I remember my father commenting that to some extent you'd have to put him down on the on the death certificate, died of his wounds because his respiratory system had never recovered. Right. Um, some of those people, but that's a awful way to go. I mean, just it's such a caustic agent. They started with chlorine. I mean, I mean they'd used tear gas a couple of times, and then they the Germans used um, chlorine on the eastern front, but it didn't really get attention until they used it against the on the western front, and then he went from chlorine to um, uh, uh, to, to mustard, and they had some other agents, vasgene and so forth. But but the two main ones were chlorine and mustard, and they were they were nasty stuff. What what had happened to these troops is, is when the ships were were bombed, a, a lot of uh, fuel was was thrown into the harbor, and they had and the gas got mixed with the fuel, and, right. and, and the combination caused it to cling to the, the guys who got off the ship and were swimming. They said, swim through this, and it cl clung to their bodies, and it ended up burning them pretty badly. Yeah. Uh, and uh, We have uh, mustard blisters were used on horses and so forth to draw fluid out of joints for a while until it was found decided that was just too cruel uh, to use. Uh, I mean, it's just it's just horrible stuff. Uh, and even if you don't get it in your lungs, just like, you know, getting it on your skin, just, uh, you know, just awful. Uh, there are Britain. Uh, uh, the British author who described she she worked as a nurse on the Western Front. She has some rather uh, uh, descriptive accounts of what the uh, poor soldiers were like, you know, what, what, what these wounds were like. 
when they came came in with mustard gas. So uh, and, and chlorine too, chlorine suffocation. Uh, but uh, yeah, it was you know, what when we talk about you know, the use of chemical weapons in World War Two. That the, you know, when you got the trenches, when you got the stalemate. Uh, in 1914, when the initial German plan to, to win the war quickly you know, failed, and everybody ended up going going to ground in effect because the weapons were so lethal. No one, you know, you know bolt action rifles, machine guns, high explosive artillery. If you were above ground, you didn't last very long. And so they, you know, literally in the summer, uh, late summer of 1914, anybody who was above ground died. And so, so you you these trench systems were created, and then how do you get around them? They tried everything. They tried digging under each other, you know, into the tunneling, and uh, they tried eventually, you know, tanks, armored vehicles. Um, they tried going around, you know, the Dardanelles, the, the plan to, you know, land along the, the Dardanelles on the Gallipoli Peninsula. Um, they, they tried a little bit of everything, massive artillery, and one of them was poison. I mean, gas, this was why they came up with this, because they nobody could find any way to break through these trenches. And so, um, so gas was one way. They tried it. You know, with canisters, you, just, you literally go out and open the open the valve and let the gas leak out and hope you know, wait till the wind is blowing in the right direction. But that was problematic because you know, darn, you know, Murphy's law, the wind will change on you. And then they start putting it in shells, you know, so that you could fire it, you know, into the enemy lines or behind the enemy lines. And so they they tried a little bit of everything in the first war. And it was so bad that uh, nobody used it. They had it, as you pointed out. You know, the the, the fact that the German bombs, uh, you know, hit the the American transports uh, off the Italian coast, and it turned out it was mustard gas on board. We had it. Uh, but even the Germans, I mean, you think, you know, that w- there wasn't much the Third Reich would do, but they didn't use it either because it was a, it was a turn effect. It had been so bad in World War One. You know, Hitler was, was badly uh, burned um, you know, by, by, you know, gas late in the war and was actually blind when the, when the, when, when the uh, uh, armistice was signed. You know, he's a corporal in, in, in the German army, and he, um, he, he'd, been, he, he'd suffered from allied gassing. So uh, I, people have even speculated on that, 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 that it was his own experience in the First World War that you know, made him leery of it. But I, I don't know. It's, uh, it's terrible stuff. And, of course, we've had, you know, discussion about uh, whether or not uh, uh, we, we talk about, you know, we had the experience in Syria most recently, but, you know, Saddam Hussein used it against his own people. Um, you know, it's, it's still out there. I mean, it's still one of those things you have to be concerned about, uh, particularly if terrorist groups or others, uh, other folks like that get get their hands on something like that. Well, I know they were disposing of some gas and other stuff uh, as late as uh, at the time of the Vietnam War uh, at a proving ground or testing ground in Utah. I can't remember the yeah, name. Yeah, Dugway. Dugway, Utah. So where they killed a bunch of sheep well, <laughs> inadvertently and Oh, but anyway, I, that was I, Colorado, actually. The, the reason they took it to, to, to Utah uh, was because they had the uh, uh, Rocky Mountain Arsenal just northeast of Denver. They had some leaks there uh, and killed sheep. And so they said, that's time to get rid of this stuff. Uh, well, apparently the Americans had it, uh, according to the lady who wrote this book, and an, an American doctor was sent over there by Ike to figure out what had happened to these guys, and he was given to telling the truth and writing up the report, and Churchill was trying to have him court-martialed and uh, and actually had him transferred out. But he, but Eisenhower allowed the report to be written and, and not destroyed. It just was kept on the back shelf until relatively recently. And I think this 
girl's grandfather, Conant, C-O-N-A-N-A-N-T. Well, you know, the knowledge of this. Was in, he was technically in charge of the part of the military that developed uh, the Manhattan Project, but uh, but all these other bombs and gas the, and weapons were the, apparently the, in his the, area, too, and that she came the, on to the case by... That cool. particular event's been well-known for some time, the, the fact that the mustard gas yeah. uh, was... Uh, 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 was there on the ship and that it was released in the attack. Uh, uh, it, it was, I mean, that's been around for quite a while. Right. Uh, but uh, it, uh, it's just, and, and people were sensitive about it, you know. Um, that and, 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 of course, there was, you know, biological weapons, uh, you know, anthrax and so forth were worked. Uh, you know, the, the, the British worked on that. We worked on that. Um and you know, in the in the late 20th century, um, isn't that weird to talk about the late 20th century? Uh, you know, in the past, but um, um, in the late 20th century, there was a lot of uh, attempts. There were a number of attempts to control both biological and chemical weapons. Uh, Nixon in '72 was one. Of, you know, actually pushed us into the, uh, the chemical uh, weapons agreements. And uh, so it's been it's been it's been interesting uh, to see how uh, nations have been for a long time were very reluctant. To limit their options, even though they didn't seem to want to use them, um, everybody was kind of leery about uh, losing their options. Of course, with biological weapons, this is getting us past World War One. But with biological weapons, everybody said, "Well, we have to keep them so we can work on antidotes, so that we know how to deal with them. That we don't want to ban them because if we don't make, if we don't know how to make them, we won't know how to treat them." And so it's it's been it's been tough, it's been tough trying to get away from that. Interesting. Well, uh, that was a question I had saved up for you when I was reading through this book. I was thinking I'm going to have to ask Dr. Well, I haven't that. seen the book, so there might be more to it that, that I, I don't I don't know about. But the, the fact that the that, that was a, a whole cloud of, of mustard gas was released um, uh, when that when the attack took place, and well, I, uh, it also it, it affected uh, local Italian civilians. Uh, well, I had heard about the, this bombing of these, you know. Because uh, it was kind of unexpected, uh, yes. the bombing uh, yeah. taking place before, but I had never heard the part about the, the mustard gas and so on. Let's take a break now, and uh, do you mind uh, taking a walk through the year and a half that the United States was involved sure. in the war? Sure, Maybe hit some of the high spots and take us up to the 11th hour of the 11th month of uh, yes, sir. 1918 yes, sir. and so on. Uh, that would be our commemoration of, of Veterans Day. Yes, sir. Dr. Joe Cadell is our guest tonight. He is a military historian, and uh, well, and he's he's an historian, and he knows a lot about the military because he's taught all kinds of history. And uh, he is our guest tonight. We're going to pause for a moment, and then we'll be back and face the fact that they, while the World War One began in 1914, uh, the guns started firing in August. Hence, the guns of August. Uh, the uh, Americans did not enter the war until, I think the declaration was like the first week of April of 1917. So uh, U.S. was technically in the war for about a year and a half, and there probably weren't troops on European soil for much more than a year of that time ready to fight. But that's the burden of demonstrating that is Dr. Cadell's, and he'll be back to do that right after this. Commemorating. Veterans Day, or what used to be called Armistice Day, because it was the date on which the armistice was signed that concluded the fighting in World War One. And 
Dr. Gazelle, we've asked you to maybe take a quick look at the American involvement in the war and just that part, because sometimes Americans don't realize that while the war went on for a little over four years, that the American troops were active in it only for about a year or to a year and a half. Okay, are we all right with that? Yeah. Cause okay. It, 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 it's always kind of fascinating, because you know, you, you, we're all guilty of presentism. Our old friend, you and I mutual, my friend Joe Hobbs, who used to always say that's one of the most important things about studying history, is to remember it didn't look the way that it does, you know, does now when it was happening. And uh, it, it, when the war broke out in, in 1914, Americans didn't think we were going to get involved. That was that would have struck them as preposterous. This had nothing to do with us. European wars came in. You know, we, 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 just the idea of getting involved in the European war in Europe, that just wasn't something that we had, had any reason to get involved in. And uh, so, matter of fact, when we, we watched it, we, we kind of went, you know, this was really a silly war. We watched how it, it unfolded, and um, it really struck people as, as, as one more silly European war. As the war went on, I mean, we, we, we felt the anger of uh, uh, that the Allies, we, we got a lot of British propaganda. We saw the war largely through British eyes, and uh, for lots of reasons. Uh, there were lots of, of, of German-Americans and a lot of Irish-Americans who really didn't want to be you know, too sympathetic to the British or, or the French. Uh, but um, as time went on, uh, some of the things the Germans did, like, like invading Belgium and certainly the unrestricted submarine warfare. You know, in 1915, the Lusitania is sunk, 128 Americans killed. Uh, another ship, four Americans killed the Arabic, I think it's August of 1915. And then there, there's, uh, you know, there's the, the Sussex is sunk in 1916. And each time that happened, President Wilson told the Germans, you know, you, sh- you you just can't attack, you know, uh, civilian shipping, uh, particularly without warning. Um, there were all kinds of, of international legal uh, 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 factors here. Uh, the uh, Paris Naval Convention, the Hague Treaties. And Wilson, you know, is uh, uh, the only president we've had who has a Ph.D. in history. Okay, his father had been a minister, and he himself had a, a good grounding in, in, in Western history. And he's, some people say the closest thing we ever had to a pacifist in the White House, because it was partly for moral reasons and partly for functional reasons. He thought war was wrong, and he thought we should stay out of this. In 1916, when he runs for re-election, I remember that was his campaign slogan. He kept us out of the war, because it was clear the, you know, the war was getting to be, uh, nobody thought it would last this long. Dr. But, Goodell? Yeah. Before you declare war here, because we went a little long during the first section, the second section is going to be a little short, and we okay. need to stop right here. Hold that thought. Wilson's going to do what he has to do. Okay. Coming up here in a couple of moments after we put a check on the news. Is sure that okay? Absolutely. Okay, Dr. Joe Cadell is our guest. It's uh, 9.30 at WPTF. 9.34 WPTF. Tom Kearney here, the Tom Kearney Show for... Wednesday night, November the 11th, in the year 2020. It's at this point that we usually do a little promoing if we're going to do it, and that means that we tell you that tomorrow night, Austin Maddox, uh, Maddox Coins and Stamps, will be our guest, and we'll talk about, uh, to use the fancy words, for lately and numismatics, that is, coins and stamps. Uh, Friday night is going to be Friday night trivia night. Uh, and uh, on Monday night... Uh, Barry Porter of the American Red Cross will be here and talk about the many things that they're involved in and all the different kinds of problems that have been created by multiple hurricanes, uh, the the virus disease, and other things. So Barry will be here on Monday night. But tonight, 
We're commemorating Veterans Day with uh, an appearance on our program of one of our favorite historians, Dr. Joe Cadell. And he uh, is uh, at the point of, I think in early April of uh, 1917, a little over 100 years ago, of doing something that he probably really didn't want to do, as I understand it, but he's having his hand forced. Yeah. Dr. Cadell, I wanted to show off and tell you that I remember there was something called the Zimmerman Telegram yep. in there somewhere. Yep. And uh, I believe, but anyway, uh, Woodrow Wilson, President of the United States, is going to have to ask for a declaration of war. Yeah, it, it, it push, push actually came to shove. I'm always backing up, you notice. That's always kind of, that's what, that's what we do. Historians are sneaky like that. It, it, the real uh, crux came in late 16, because the... British and the French were running out of, of resources, and they start borrowing money. We, we've been, you know, providing, you know, cash on the barrelhead. We said we'd sell to anybody, but really we've been selling most of the raw materials and, and so forth to the British and the French, especially the British. And then the British start to run out of their, their liquid capital. They start running out of their, their, their gold, gold reserves are down. They start borrowing from people like J.P. Morgan and others at, at tremendous interest rates. Um, and so our neutrality starts to waver a bit, and that we now are economically closer to the to the Allies in, in many ways. Um, and then the Germans, what really pushed them over, and what what forces them into things like the, the Zimmerman Telegram, that in late in '16 they realized that um, the British blockade was slowly strangling them. It was slow but sure, and uh, you know they they had enough continental resources that they were they were, were going to last a bit longer. But the, the, their own economic analysts said that. In a year to 18 months, the German economy would no longer be able to maintain wartime production. And so that's bad news. Um, the German Navy says, yeah, but if you turn our submarines loose, stop worrying about the Americans and anybody else, just let our submarines uh, go to unrestricted submarine warfare. We think we can knock the British out, an island nation, not self-sufficient raw materials. We think we can knock them out in six months. And then at that point, the Foreign Office says, yeah, but if you do that, the Americans will go into the war. Whereupon the German army says, we've done a study on this. The American army is under 200,000 men. They're 18th in the world. We're not a major military power. It'll take the Americans at least a year to get an army into France, anything approaching you know, an organized army. Um, and so based on those numbers, they decided the best option, the only option they had really was to go to unrestricted submarine warfare. They announced that in January 1917. It begins on the 1st of February, 1917. Just a few days after that, uh, the Germans send a telegram, the Zimmerman telegram that you just mentioned, uh, from uh, you know, Germany to the German ambassador in Washington to relay it onto the German ambassador in Mexico City, trying to get Mexico to enter the war against the United States if we went to war with Germany. If the United States went to war with Germany, they wanted Mexico, and then they were also making overtures to Japan to change sides. Japan was an ally uh, in the war, not an ally of Germany. They were an ally of the British, the French, the Russians. And, and so, you know, they said, you know, we'll get Japan, but we really want Mexico. The Germans really wanted Mexico to declare war on the United States. And in return, they would get um, Texas, Arizona, New Mexico back. And this really set the Mexicans up, because the Mexicans, the Mexicans didn't fall for this. The Mexicans went, there's no way. I mean, you know. The Americans will, will turn on us, um, and and yet the British uh, intelligence, uh, Room Forty, the Admiralty, the British uh, crypto analysts, these are the, the forerunners of Bletchley Park. If people know about the Enigma codes in World War II, 
the British had a pretty good history of breaking ciphers, and they they broke this this message, um, and they showed it to us. And the um, uh, American ambassador in London is a North Carolina boy, Walter Hines Page. As a matter of fact, from my hometown, I knew his, uh, his, I think his grandson was Bobby Page. Last I, I, I hope Mr. Page is still with us. Uh, uh, last I heard he was in his 90s, still practicing law down there. But uh, uh, in any case, uh, 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 Walter Hines Page, our ambassador, he, was, he, he liked the British. He's very much an, an Anglophile, but he also knew the British were, were you know, above, you know, a little deception. So this looked like something, you know, the British might be pulling on us. But we had other ways, and won't go into all of that. Barbara Tuckman has written a really good work on this, on the German Telegram, if you really want to, to delve into it. It's a good story. It's a good read. Uh, but Tuckman, T-U-C-H-M-A-N, uh, wrote the book Guns of August, but she also wrote this book, the German Telegram. And so we were able to ascertain that this really was the real deal, that the German Foreign Secretary Zimmerman really had sent this. And that combined with the fact that the Germans were now sinking merchant ships, uh, including neutral ships. In March, they sank four U.S. vessels. Before this, the Lusitania was a British ship that had Americans on board. They had not been sinking American ships. Now, in March of 1917, in addition to you know, British and French ships, they, they sank a few American ships. And that plus Zimmerman telegram, Wilson releases information about the Zimmerman telegram to the public. And as you point out, on the 2nd of April, he asked Congress for a declaration of war. They give it to him on the 6th. I think it was the Senate approved it on the 4th and the House on the 6th, whatever. Um, and so we're at war. Now we got to go from 200,000 men in the Army to, at one point, we said we'd have almost 5 million, 4.8 million at one point. We end up um, having over 2 million men in France. But like you said, it, it took a while. We, we got staff people over there in, in May. In July, the famous uh, uh, Colonel Stanton uh, at the grave of, of Lafayette gives the famous Lafayette, we are here speech. And Pershing got there, and he's trying to build up an army. And he runs it. Okay, we, we, our mobilization is, is not particularly effective in World War I. Um, we, uh, we didn't have enough uniforms. That, that, people may have seen pictures of the soldiers drilling with the wooden guns, the broom handles, and so forth. They didn't, uh, troops are drilling in their civilian clothes because we didn't have enough uniforms. When you have an army of over 200,000 men, and you're trying to build it up to you know, over to, into the millions, uh, you've got a lot of catching up to do. Uh, we had a really good rifle, the Springfield 1903, the Model 1903, really good rifle, but we didn't have many of them. And so mobilization was, was a mess. Uh, we didn't know, the, there was nobody in the government who really knew much about economic mobilization, about industrial requirements. We didn't know how much steel went into a, to a, to a Springfield rifle. And even when we figured out how much steel, we didn't know how much coal or iron ore you needed uh, to make that much steel. Um, and the railroads uh, were a mess, so we nationalized the railroads, and that made an even bigger mess. Yeah, we do a really good job in World War II. American mobilization in World War II is so impressive, so, so impressive. And people say one reason we did such a good job in World War II is we learned how not to do it in World War I. But uh, it takes us a year. The Germans were, were dead on. We, we put our first troops into trenches, uh, I believe it was in October of 1917, down, down into the Swiss border kind of a quiet sector. I think I mentioned that. I think our first casualties were in early November. Um, we, we got some, some of the American soldiers were killed in a German attack. Um, and Pershing is all this time is trying to keep the British and the French from siphoning off American troops. 
they, they came to him and said, don't send over officers, don't send over staff, don't send over your support people. All we need are American infantry, American boys. Your, your American soldiers are good, healthy fellows, and the British and the French armies, are, you know, they're, they're, they're running low on troops. Uh, British and French armies had mutinied in 1917, uh, and they, they really need the manpower. And they said, you guys don't know how to fight over here anyway. You, you've been fighting Indians and, and, and Mexican bandits. You couldn't even catch Pancho Villa. So don't, don't think you can fight the Imperial German Army. So, so come over, just, just send your soldiers, and we'll, put them in, we'll plug them into British and French units. And Pershing says, no, um, there will either be an American army or there won't be an army Americans at all. And he holds out until March of 1918 when the Germans launch uh, the last major offensive, uh, the spring offensive of 1918. Um, the Germans are able to move troops from the Eastern Front. Russia has dropped out of the war. Uh, the Russians signed the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk, uh, and that takes Russia out of the war. And the Germans shift, you know, a million and a half men or more from the Eastern Front to the Western Front, and they strike in the uh, in halfway through little, last half of March, 1918. And uh, the French uh, need troops so badly. The British need troops. Uh, Pershing sees what's happening, realizes this is an emergency, and that's when he. He allows uh, American troops to be sent off to help the British and the French. And so you have things like uh, uh, the Marines go, and it, it, uh, a lot of people have heard of Bellew Wood. The Marines go into Bellew Wood, and, and, and basically it's, it's a, a stopgap measure. And so American troops uh, help the British, they help the French. And so right there in, in April, uh, right on into June, uh, American troops are being used uh, to help the British and the French stave off this offensive, but then Pershing gets the troops back, forms the American Army, First Army, then Second Army, and they go on the offensive. And I've, I've got some numbers. I, I went and grabbed this um, just to show you how the American Army, the, the increase. In April, there were 500 American troops joining a, a British offensive um, uh, on, the northern, uh, on the northern section of the, of the Western Front. Um, in June, there are almost 28,000 uh, troops uh, involved in Bellew Wood, mostly Marines. Um, July to August, there are 270,000 U.S. troops uh, at Chateau Thierry. And in September, there are 550,000 U.S. troops at St. Miel Stallion. And then from September and October of 1918, there are over 1.2 million troops advancing in the Meuse-Argonne Offensive. If you put that on a graph, that's a pretty steep rise. And we've been shipping troops over. Uh, you know, the Navy uh, brings over over 2 million troops or escorts. Uh, the, uh, the German U-boats um, came very, very close. Uh, at one point, 10 days to 14 days of supplies are in reserve in Great Britain. The British economy, you know, when you're in a, in a wartime economy, you want to be months ahead in terms of your inventory uh, of everything, right? Beans, bullets, <laughs> you, you name it not only for your civilian population, but for wartime production. And during the you know, late 1917, uh, at one point, uh, well, middle August, you know, thereabouts, the British were down to 10 to 14 days' worth of, of supplies. I mean, they, they really, they came much closer in World War One than in World War Two to strangling Britain with their submarines. But it, they didn't. The, the, the truth of the matter is the, the Allies... Uh, built more shipping, uh, 
where the German calculations were off, they, they hadn't realized that the British and the Americans and so forth would build more shipping and also buy more shipping. We went on bought ships all over the world to replace. They, they hadn't thought about the replacement back. Uh, they were right about the Americans taking a year, and even more. I think you pointed that out earlier, that it took us a year at least. But that's that's where our, our, our importance. We, 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 it's not like World War II where the American Army, uh, it really is the, the dominant force on the Western Front. Uh, the American Army is, is still smaller than the British and the American forces when the war ends, uh, than the, the, the British or the French forces. The American Army is not as large as, as, as the British or the French Army, but it's growing. And I, I'll shut up and, and say that one of the most intriguing things I ever heard was that the Americans won the campaign of 1919. And as you know, the war is over in 1918, so what they mean by that is if the war had continued, everybody knew that the deciding factor would be that American army, and the Germans knew that too, which is why they're willing to, to accept an armistice, and they wanted armistice uh, by, by November of 1918. There's so many aspects of, of this war that, uh, uh, that we could, if we had three or four nights, we could sort of uh, build a build a little castle out of it, but, but you've done exactly what I wanted you to do tonight, and that is to kind of take a run-through so folks could see how long it took to build up American troops and use them when it was necessary to to, to be a part of a, the, the tipping point. Yeah, we're going to take a, a break, good, and we're going to have a few that's minutes a in the program when we come back, and uh, so you can be cogitating on it, Dr. Cadell. Since we, we have the Corano... Forest. I hope I said that right. I've never been able to pronounce that word. I have a block in my head against it. But there was, in fact, uh, a plague during World War One, and it was the Spanish flu. And, uh, in fact, uh, the moving about of troops from the United States to, to Europe and, and, and other cases is thought to have contributed to the spreading of the right. flu. That may or may not be true. You may want to comment on that, but but I guess what I'm asking you is if you have any sense of what effect the the flu may or may may or may not have had on the war, it would be good to hear from you on that subject, and and then uh, then that should uh, make a nice neat package out of our program tonight. Dr. Joe Cadell is our guest, military historian, talking about American involvement uh, on the continent in World War One, so that the war could come to an armistice on the 11th hour of the 11th day. Uh, of the 11th month in uh, 1918. Back with Dr. Joe Cadell in just a couple of minutes. For Wednesday night, November the 11th, 2020, we're talking by way of commemoration about the end of World War One, And a day that used to be called Armistice Day and is now called Veterans Day in the United States, but is celebrated... Uh, pretty much around the world, because World War One was a world war. And the, our authority on it and talking to us about American involvement is Dr. Joe Cadell. Uh, Dr. Cadell, I think I, uh, I may have if I've thrown you a curveball on this question about the involvement of the Spanish flu in, in the war. Uh, I, I apologize, but do you have any sense of what, what the uh, contribution was? We have about three minutes left in the program. Well, the, the, you really need somebody who's you know, an epidemiologist or someone. I actually had a, a grad student who's just left state who said that was his specialty. Uh, he wasn't my grad. He, he TA'd for me uh, 
one uh, one semester, and uh, 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 so I call him mine. He was a good guy. I really liked him. He he worked on on on, on basically medical history, uh, but um, it, it didn't really affect combat operations. It came right at the end of the war, uh, and it was there. And but they you know, again, um, even before it arrived, uh, World War One was still a war where we lost more people to disease and accident than we did to combat. Yeah, I mean that that's been true, you know, in all our wars up until until World War Two. Um, we always lose more people in, 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 in the wars to disease and accident than we do in the Civil War. Uh, this is a little uh, uncouth, I guess, to say, but uh, I remember, you know, I had a professor who used to always like to point out that we lost more people to to to, to diarrhea in World in the Civil War than we did the gunshots because uh, dysentery and you know, different diseases and um, yeah, I mean, just you know, diseases you know, always. Uh, and, and that an accident, but um, when the when the Spanish flu or you know the 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 the, uh, the influence of 1918 1919 came in, um, it it was devastating, and, and killed more people in about a year and a half than the World War killed by far, um, and and just everywhere. I mean, it was a yeah, and there was a big debate at the time about which way it was going. Did, did American troops bring it to Europe, or did they bring it back home from Europe? Um, and it was. Um, you know, it took a while before people could put it together, and I think, like you said, it looks like our troops took it to uh, to Europe. Where it came from originally, they've been working. They they were um, uh, exhuming these frozen bodies of, of American soldiers up in Alaska uh, and, and studying the cells. Uh, and uh, these you know doughboys that had been stationed in Alaska who who died of the flu, and because they were frozen up there ever since 1918, 1919. Uh, the, the scientists were, were looking at some of the, the, the cells, and, and they, they got a pretty good, better handle on the on the on the background of the of the of the, of the flu and where it was coming from. Uh, but uh, again, the comparisons constantly are being made with the coronavirus. Uh, but uh, it, and you know the same problem we had in, in, in at that time was uh, getting people to 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 wear masks and to quarantine and so forth. That that was there uh, in in 1918, They really had you know difficulty getting that enforced. Uh, but uh, uh, they they would quarantine homes even uh, uh, to try to c- control it because it was just so deadly, uh, just as this is. But um, well, it's about time for us to go, Doctor Cadell. But my producer, Mister John Salter, tells me that you will be back on. Uh, December 7th. I can't remember what day of the week that is, but that is Pearl Harbor Day, and it will be to commemorate your 29th appearance on Pearl Harbor Day. And I thank you for coming and helping us. Thanks for putting up with me. Remember the boys of World War One, and and, uh, it's always good to talk with you. And we'll talk with you again in about uh, about three weeks, I guess. I'll I'll talk to you then, Tom. Okay. Have a good. Be safe. Okay. You take care, Joe. Yes, sir. You too, Tom. Dr. Joe Cadell, one of our favorite guests here on the Tom Kearney Show. That's it for tonight. Tomorrow night we're going to talk about stamps and coins with Austin Maddox.